One of the interesting things about 1 Timothy, for me anyways, when I uh, have the privilege of speaking on it, is we all come to the Bible. The reality is we all come to the Bible with kind of our preconceived ideas of what we're going to find there. So when I said that we're going to start the series in 1 Timothy, many people already have their uh, mind kind of made up about what they're going to hear and what they're going to, or what they expect they're going to experience through this. And so we're going to know about, you know, it's an encouragement to young people and various other things. And many of that is true, but at the same time, we have to realize that uh, we need to come to the scriptures um, just kind of humbly and asking the Lord, what is it that you want me to hear this time? And so I'm hoping and praying, Larry and I both are really hoping that we, as we study this, will hear it with fresh ears and we will wade through kind of the baggage that is kind of piled up over years about what this book means and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I have a feeling it will be really good. And we've entitled the, the series In Accord, and the subtitle is The Gospel and Godliness. And the reason why we did that is because for many Christians, the concept of godliness, which is the way in which we behave in accordance with God's commands, you know, the obedience, morality kind of thing. Um, when we talk about that, it, it is oftentimes contrasted with the notion of God's grace. And so we oftentimes see that obedience and grace, they're really just kind of going at it. And, and we hear things like law and gospel and which is which. And so in the book of 1 Timothy, what we're trying to emphasize is this. Actually, godliness, which is behavior, which is an obedience to God's commands, and the gospel, they're in accord. Which means they're, they're complementary. They're in accordance with one another. They don't contradict one another and they're not battling for supremacy. And in reality, they're actually together. And they're compatible. But for many people, um, especially people who have been around the church for a long time, we've, we've kind of developed this vocabulary. When we hear the word law, it's, oh yeah, that's the opposite of grace. And when we hear the concept of grace, we tend to think, oh yeah, that's the opposite of obedience. And we're going to show from 1 Timothy that that's not true. Um, godliness and the gospel go hand in hand. There's a lot of things in life that we know which are compatible, some things which are incompatible, and you probably are well aware of this. But like, for instance, simple things like Oreos and milk. Compatible. It just goes together. I don't know how you can eat one without the other. At the same time, if you brush your teeth in the morning and you plan to drink orange juice, not compatible. That's disgusting. And so we understand, like, in our, in our experience, there are things in life which kind of just go together, and there's other things that don't. Now, in Christianity, we have uh, terms, I guess you can call them, for people who prioritize obedience and people who prioritize grace. And what I mean is this. If you're somebody that gets all hot and bothered when people aren't acting right, and you're like, man, I wish they would just be, you know, like, more moral. They need to get their act together. The tendency is to label these kinds of people, identify them as legalists. They're people who take the commands of God and they're like, look, you better do this. And so we have this term legalist to kind of identify them. At the same time, people who really emphasize grace, it's all about grace, 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 grace. Don't worry about obedience, just grace, man. Grace is enough, grace, grace. They are this term, which is going to be new for many of you, and it's kind of a long term, but here it is. It's called antinomian, antinomian. What that means is anti, it's against, and nomian is, is the word for law. And so they're anti-law. And so a legalist is saying, you better obey, and the antinomianist is saying, oh, it's all about grace. But the reality is when we read the New Testament, we see in the book of Jude where it warns people, do not use God's grace as a license for immorality. 
which is a warning against antinomianism, which is, guys, don't just say, oh, God's grace, it's great. Now I can go send my brains out. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. At the same time, we have different things um, that tell us that, you know what, you really do need to obey God. You really do need to be faithful to God's commands. And so um, when we look at these things, it becomes a complicated uh, experience. And a lot of people will look at these things as opposites. It's either grace or law. But in reality, we realize that uh, antinomianism and also uh, legalism, they're not quite direct opposites, but instead they're both wrong for similar reasons. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor, he writes this, that they, being uh, antinomianists and legalists, they're not identical, they're non-identical twins from the same womb. And so you get that? So they're twins, but they're non-identical twins from the same womb. The concept is this, that both legalism and antinomianism have their root, which is shared. And the sharing of that root, which is spoiled, is this. Neither perspective truly grasps the love of God. Neither perspective truly grasps the love of God. Here's what I mean. A legalist will say in their minds that God's love is conditioned upon my obedience. In other words, I can't experience God's love until I obey him. And once I obey him, then I will feel the love of God. Antinomian would say something different. They would say, no, 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 if, if God is truly loving and love is a freeing thing, then God cannot command anything because to command anything is to be unloving. And so the antinomian would really uh, plant their flag in that camp and say, no, absolutely not. God doesn't command anything. He's all love. And we hear that in our culture today, all over the place. The reality is both of these perspectives find their root in a misunderstanding of what God's love is. Tim Keller, he writes this, the only difference between the two is that legalists wearily assume the burden of obedience while the antinomian refuses it and casts it off by insisting that if God is really loving, he wouldn't ever ask for our obedience. And the reality is this, look, every single one of us in this room is going to have a tendency towards one or the other. In your heart of hearts, if it's zero to 100%, there's at least 51% of you that is going to land on one side or the other. Demanding obedience or demanding that we understand God according to his grace. No law. And that's just true of all of us. So if the problem is the same, which is misunderstanding and ignorance of God's love, then the solution is also the same. And here's the solution. That we deepen our understanding of grace and the nature of who God is by recounting the gospel and thereby seeing that obedience is our joy. And that's part of the gospel. Not only is the gospel the good news that our sins have been forgiven because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, but also we have the glad news that now we can please God through our obedience because God the Son has sent God the Spirit to enable us to obey. And when we obey, there is gladness and joy to be had. So this morning, here's what we're going to walk away with. That right belief leads to right living. Let me say that again. 
right belief will lead to right living. And that is true because godliness is in accordance with the gospel. If you, as Christians, our whole life is all about, I get this from Ligon Duncan, who is one of my old professors. He said, what you want to do is you want to get your life, the way you live, in conjunction with what you believe. You got to get your believing and your living together. And that's the endeavor of being a Christian. But right belief leads to right living because godliness and the gospel, they really go hand in hand. And like I said, this is going to be a paradigm shift for some people. This is going to be hard for some people to grasp because your whole life as a Christian, you've heard law, bad, grace, good. But you realize, no, 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 grace leads to obedience. And this may be challenging for some. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. God, we have endeavored as a church to enter into this book called 1 Timothy. To learn the things you have put here for us to learn. And so I pray, God, that the same spirit that inspired Paul to write this, that you would grant us the spirit in order to understand what is written. God, you told us that the spirit of God searches the deep things of God so that we can know the spiritual things. And these things have been freely given to us. And so I pray, God, wash us with the spirit. Give us the mind of understanding and the heart to believe these things. Grant us these things in abundance, we pray, according to your grace. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what I'm going to do now is give you a little bit of introduction about Timothy, the first Timothy as a book. But many of the things that I'm going to talk about um, are already listed in your small group little booklet, the In Accord one. And uh, so I'm not going to go into detail about who these people are and what their relationship was, uh, Paul and Timothy. But I'm going to say a couple introductory things and uh, you can read the rest of it in your little book. And by the way, if you didn't get a small group book, I told you a couple weeks ago, you should have. And now we're sold out. You missed out. Okay. There's my chastisement. It's the best I can do. Anyways, we pick it up from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, where we're introduced for the very first time uh, the, the person of Timothy. Paul is on a missions trip, and he's going around the Mediterranean region sharing the gospel. Many people are coming to faith, and he comes to a place called Lystra and Derby. When he comes there, he encounters a man named Timothy, who is a young disciple. This young disciple has a mom who is Jewish and has a father who is Greek or a Gentile. And so Timothy is a perfect person for Paul to partner with because he's half Jewish and half Gentile. Remember that Paul was sent as a Jewish man to the Gentiles for the sake of the gospel. So Timothy is a well-known person in, in uh, verse 2 of Acts chapter 16. He has a great reputation. People in the community really respect him. So Paul invites him to be a travel companion of his to go on a few mission trips. Not only is Timothy a travel companion, but he's also identified as one of the co-authors in many of Paul's letters. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. All of these letters identify Paul, or, yeah, identify Timothy as a co-author with Paul. And so Timothy is a significant figure in the New Testament and in the early church. Now, when we ask ourselves uh, the question of, well, what's going on here? Why did Paul write to Timothy? I think that's an important question. But even a better question is this, is what is the purpose behind Paul's writing uh, the letter of 1 Timothy in the first place? Like, what is Paul trying to accomplish? What is his goal? What is his aim? What is he trying to communicate? Now, whenever we ask that question of the Bible, it's a really important question that we should not go without answering. And here's what I mean. Whenever you have correspondence between Paul to Timothy or Paul to other churches, 
Once you find out what the purpose of that correspondence is, it serves as the parameter or the boundaries for your interpretation. Which means when you come to 1 Timothy, there are certain boundaries that we must know in order to interpret the book rightly. If we do not know these boundaries and we do not know these parameters, we can interpret this book wrongly and we can draw false conclusions. And so we have to know why did Paul write this? What is his goal? What is his aim? And in answering that question, we come to find out what the purpose of the book is and therefore our interpretation of the book can be um, right rather than wrong. And the reason why I say that is this. There are so many churches and preachers and stuff out there which take this book and they interpret it outside of the boundaries in which it should be interpreted. And I'll show you why. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 is where we find the purpose statement from Paul. He says, I hope to come to you soon, to Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that. You you see what he's doing there. I want to see you in person. I want to be face to face with you. But in case I'm delayed and I'm not able to be face to face with you, I'm writing these things so that. Here's our purpose. So that. If I delay, verse 15, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see what Paul does there. I want to tell you the purpose of why I'm writing, Timothy, and it's this. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You need to know how one ought to behave. Now, the language that he uses here is ought. You notice that? When you use the word ought, you do not imply suggestion. Like, for instance, hey, if you think about it, maybe if you feel like it, if you're up to it, maybe if you, you know, I mean, you could do it if you want. No, no, no. Ought means do it. There is no option out of it. You ought to do this. And so in Paul's uh, writing to Timothy, he's saying, look, I'm writing these things so that people will know how they ought to behave. Okay, there's no suggestion here that you have an option not to. You have to obey this. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about those who are in the household of God. Those, this is how you ought to behave in the household of God. Now, here's the reality. When you think about the household of God, that's a very intimate thing. That means you're a member of God's family. And we're told in Romans 8 that the only way that you can be adopted into the family of God and be a son or daughter of God is through the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to get the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13 tells us you have to hear the gospel and believe it. And by believing it, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are adopted into the family of God. And you are now a son or daughter of God. That's amazing. And so what now Paul is saying is, look, if that's true of you, you're a Christian. You've heard the gospel. You believed. You're filled with the Spirit. You need to know how you ought to behave in the church. Whoa. See, we as Americans already are like, oh, I don't know if I like this sermon. Who's he telling me how to behave? I'm not telling you how to behave. Paul's telling you. Now, if you notice what he does, he says it's the household of God, which is, just in case we're confused here, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, many people interpret the book of 1 Timothy because there's some sections in it which are hard to hear. I will grant you that. You and I are going to have trouble listening to some of the things Paul writes here. Not this morning, but in a couple weeks. And many people are going to say things like, well, that's just, you know, that's, that's that time and place, that context, it's just that church. And this is referring to the church in Ephesus. 
But we have to realize from the purpose statement, that's not a legitimate interpretation. Let's go back. Verse 15. How you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, if Paul is writing to Timothy only to explain to him how the church in Ephesus ought to behave, then what we can conclude is this. That the only church which is the household of God is the church of Ephesus. The only church which is the church of the living God is the church in Ephesus. And the only church which is the buttress of the truth is the church in Ephesus. Now is that true? No. In fact, the rest of the New Testament defies that kind of thinking where Paul actually calls people brothers and sisters, calls them saints, says that they're a part of the church, and actually says things like we uphold the truth. And so in Paul's mind, what he's saying is this is how you as a Christian ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church universal. Not just the church in Ephesus, but the church at Golden Hills and Brentwood or the church wherever. It's transnational. It extends into eternity. It's not bound by geopolitical boundaries. He's talking about the church, everyone who is a Christian for all times and all places. This is how you ought to behave. Okay, so that's the boundaries that we have of interpretation. We can't go beyond that. We're not allowed to. Paul doesn't let us do that. Okay, so Paul's writing to Christians. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, you hear kids say this, and I have a couple younger kids, a 12-year-old and 10-year-old, and you hear this every once in a while where one of them tells the other one what to do. You, you need to go do that. And the other one replies, says who? <laughs> or then you hear the other one, who, di- who died and made you boss? You're like, what? And and we laugh at that because, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, kids, they're silly. But we as grown-ups, like grown men and women, we do that all the time. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? Like, what are you, eight? So the question is, well, where does Paul get his authority to be telling us how to live? Who does he think he is? All right, I'll grant you that. You you can say that. That's okay. Who does Paul think he is? Well, let's start this in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, which means messenger of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Who gives Paul the authority to tell people how they ought to live their lives? Verse 1, God does. Paul says, I'm an apostle not because I bribe someone, not because I'm super gifted. I'm an apostle sent by God at the command of God. I'm writing to you, you these things not because I possess authority in and of myself. I'm writing to you these things that you ought to behave because God has told me to do this. And so therefore, if you disobey my words, you're not disobeying me, you're disobeying God. That's, that's the logic here. That's why Paul does that. I, I am who I am at the command of God. No one told me to do this but God himself. So who gave, God, uh, who gave Paul the authority? God did. But then you notice there's this tenderness in verse 2 to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul is not just bossing Timothy around. He's saying, Timothy, you know that God gave me this position. He, he's told me what to do with this church. And I love you, man. I love you. You're my true child. Here's how we need to live. And so there's a tenderness in his authority that I think is worth noting. 
And here's what Paul wants to write to Timothy, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, so that is the time in which Paul was ministering outside of the time frame that we have in Acts. So it's beyond Acts chapter 28. He says, when I was going to Macedonia, I urged you to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and the endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here is Paul's command to Timothy. Timothy, I need you to go to Ephesus because I need you to confront some people who are standing in the church and teaching things they ought not to teach. Go get them. I don't know about you, but the idea of confronting other people, not my favorite. Not only that, but I don't even like being confronted. Can you imagine for a second that your, your like spiritual father is just like, hey, I need you to go do this. Do the very thing that you don't want to do. All right, go. You're kind of like, dude, I don't know if I like that. But that's what the command is. I need you to go to Ephesus because there are certain persons who are teaching things they shouldn't be teaching. Now the ESV uses the word different doctrine. The NIV uses false doctrine. And it reminds us that in Paul's mind, look, there is the gospel. And then any variation of the gospel, any kind of alternative perspective of the gospel is not just an equal but, you know, alternative. It's different in the sense that it's false. Now that is, that is man, that is pressing, especially on like a, a pluralistic society like America that we live in where it's like you have your opinion, you have your opinion, all the opinions are equally valid. And you go, what? No. If your perspective, de- perspective on the gospel deviates from what the gospel is revealed to be in the New Testament, it's not just you have a different perspective as though there's alternate facts, but you're dead wrong. You're just, you're just wrong. It's false. So, so Timothy has to confront these teachers, and we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we see in verse 4 that they were devoted to two things, and that is to myths and endless genealogies. Myths implies stories that are about people that are like just kind of stories. They're just more committed to the stories than, than the facts of the gospel. And then endless genealogies kind of reminds us of kind of Mormonism where they're really committed to the genealogies and how everything fits together and all that. And Paul's saying, look, 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 these guys who are teaching this false stuff, they're, they're, com- they're devoted to these things. And this is a dangerous thing. And he f- finishes the sentence by saying, being devoted to these things promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, if you devote yourself to myths and endless genealogies, what you're doing is you're basically committing yourself, devoting yourself to the promotion of speculation. Now, speculation is just kind of like, what do you think? I don't know. How about this? All right, cool. And it's just, it's like, huh? So, and, and here's what Paul does. He says, look, if you're devoted to that stuff, you promote speculations. And then he contrasts the speculations with this. He says, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The word stewardship is the word where we get household management from. It's the ability to be administrative and the ability to follow through with your commitments. It's having everything organized and well run. 
In the NIV, the word is translated rather than advancing God's work. And you see what Paul does here. He says, look, these false teachers, they're, they're promoting speculation rather than or in contrast to advancing God's work. That's a problem. Because we as Christians are commanded to go do work, do the Lord's business. And yet one of the hindrances to doing the work of God and advancing his kingdom is when we are committed to the promotion of speculation. Now in our culture today, there's lots of speculation out there. And some of it is juicy and interesting, except for it's just not helpful. One of them is this. I heard this question not too long ago. Hey, who do you think the Antichrist is? Do you think it's Vladimir Putin? I do. I think it's him. Cool. Speculation. How about this? Do you think Jesus is going to come back this year? What about next month? What about, what about next year? What about next month? What? What are you doing? We know he's coming back, but he said, you're not going to know when. So quit speculating. Move on. Do the work. Get to work. Do the king's business. Why about this one? Hey, did you hear about the new book? And this is true, actually. The new book that just got published about the secret Bible codes that helps you unlock its meaning. If you count the fourth letter of every word and you multiply it by the second letter of every word, you divide it by the 16th word in every, every sentence, and then you divide all of that by how, what page number you have in the King James Version, then you're going to get, you know what, it predicts history. It talks about Hitler. What is, I mean this in the most loving way possible. Dude, what's wrong with you? And yet these books make it on Amazon's bestseller list. And, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. God commanded us go into the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, but who's the Antichrist? And I'm thinking perhaps the, the reason why our missions isn't as productive as it could be is because we're spending so much time on speculation, as Paul says, instead of the stewardship, instead of advancing the work of God. And it's a direct uh, pushed by Paul to say, guys, 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 let's get about the business. Let's, let's prioritize what needs to be prioritized. And Timothy's the one to stand there and to teach them, you, you can't keep doing this. But look at the aim. Look at the goal of this charge. Paul says it's love. <laughs> the charge is love. You're going to confront them because you love them. Now, in our culture today, love and confrontation are opposites. If you truly love someone, you won't say anything about how they live. I love how Pastor John Piper, he defines love as this. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Out of the overflow of love that you have, and the joy that comes from that in God. Out of that overflow, you see the needs of your neighbors and you gladly, not reluctantly, not dutifully, but you gladly meet their needs. Those who teach false doctrine and those who believe false doctrine, they have a need. They need true doctrine. Will you gladly meet their need? It's all about love. Lovingly serving those who have false doctrine. And I know that sounds contrary to our culture today, but that is what is commanded. But notice that Paul does three things. He makes sure that our love has certain qualifications and characteristics. One is that it issues from a pure heart. 
Remember what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. And if we are pure in heart, then we will behold God. And as we behold God and he reveals himself, we begin to treasure him above all things. So the purity of our heart isn't just that we're not looking at pornography. Purity of heart means that we treasure God above everything else. And that is how you truly love somebody is when you treasure Christ more than you treasure them. It is in your wife's or husband's or your neighbor's best interest that you don't love them more than God. You love God more than them. Because human beings make terrible idols. And so we have to treasure Christ. Treasure God. Love comes from a good conscience, Paul says. Good conscience, which means from a position of morality and goodness. That means the confronter loves the person and is not like trying to get even with them, nor do they have an axe to grind, but their motivation is by loving that person. They can bring them to repentance and they can know the truth. You're not trying to get even and I'm going to get this guy. And that it should come from a sincere faith. What Paul means is that there's no hypocrisy in your confrontation. Now, we love, we love that word hypocrisy, and we like to be like, oh, I don't want to confront anyone because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And basically what we want to do is we want to make sure that we mitigate any uncomfortable un, like, feelings. And so if we convince ourselves in our minds, I won't confront them because they will reciprocate the non-confrontational attitude towards me. Woo! They won't say anything to me. I won't say anything to them. And then we mask that in, I don't want to be a hypocrite. But the reality is confrontation in a non-hypocritical way is this. If you see a brother and sister or brother or sister of sin, you confront them about their sin, but you make sure that you're not guilty of that same exact sin. That's hypocrisy. So if you see your brother stealing and you're not guilty of stealing, maybe you have other sin, you're, you're unforgiving. You can confront your brother who is stealing free of hypocrisy because you're not stealing. You got other sin. But if your brother is stealing and you're cheating on your taxes, keep your mouth closed. You're a hypocrite. See how that works? So we need to be free of hypocrisy. We need to make sure that whoever it is we confront, we're coming to them with pure motives, with a, a treasuring of God be, above all things. And we want to make sure that we're not guilty of that same exact thing. You want to confront false teaching, make sure that you believe the gospel truly. These certain persons, look at this in verse 6. They were swerving from these things, which means they didn't treasure God above all things. They didn't have a good conscience. They were actually out for selfish ambition, and they didn't have a sincere faith. They were actually hypocritical. And they wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see what's happening here? Number one, they don't know what they're talking about. And secondly, they're bragging about how much they know. So they're arrogantly bragging about their ignorance. And not only that, but in their ignorance, they're bragging about how much they know. And that's a bad situation. So Paul says, these are the people I need you to confront. Because they need to be loved. Now that Paul has brought up the idea of the law, here's what ends up happening. He, he kind of pivots and he begins to go on this other trail talking about the law. And so at this point in the sermon, you're going to feel as though I've kind of changed course and now I'm going to talk about something different, and that's true. And it's not because I want to talk about something different, it's because Paul takes us there. 
And he's one of those writers that as he's writing, he thinks of something that's really good. It's like, oh, yeah, you should do this. <gasps> Speaking of that, okay. And so it's called digressions. So he kind of has like parenthetical information. And he's like, speaking of the law, i got a lot to say about the law. And that's what ends up happening in the next verses. So we kind of pivot. And this is what Paul writes. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding that, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In essence, Paul gives this whole list of particular behaviors that are the reason why the law is there. The law is given for people who act like this. Which reminds us that the whole reason why laws exist in the first place is not because people are good, but because people are wicked. This is one of the most easiest ways to do like an apologetic thing when people deny that, that human beings are evil or like that we do bad stuff. I just kind of go, then why are there laws? We surely don't reward everyone for not robbing banks. But we surely do punish them for robbing banks. Do you, do you see how that works? So laws are enacted because people are wicked. And so Paul says, look, the law is given not for the just, or in other words, not for people who are holy and blameless. The law is given for those who are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. It's for, it's for immoral people that the law is given. Now, why is that important? Because Paul says this thing, which I think is shocking. He says, we know that the law is good. Now, for people who have been around Christianity for a long time and they understand the gospel and they read maybe the book of Galatians, they would pause right here and kind of say, well, wait a minute, I thought the law was bad. I thought grace is good. What? Wait, which is good? He says that the law is good and there's a condition. If one uses it lawfully. You have to use it right. And if you use it rightly, it is good. But the question is, well, how do you use it lawfully? That's a great question. How we use it rightly has been taught by Christians for literally thousands of years. There are three primary ways that the law is used in a good and right way. And this has been taught, handed down to us generation after generation, years and years of Christian teaching. There's three uses of the law. The first use of the law, which makes the law good, is this. That it makes you aware of your sin and it drives you to Christ. It makes you aware, whoa, I am not holy. And the second thing is, I need a savior. There he is, his name is Jesus. And I get this straight from Paul in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin or that it's bad? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You see that? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, if you know your Ten Commandments, you know that what he just said was the Tenth Commandment. And so when Paul uses the word the law, that's what he's referring to. It's the Ten Commandments. And what he says is, if it hadn't been for the Ten Commandments, I would have had no idea just how bad of a sinner I really am. But there's a second part to it. 
not only does it make you aware of your sin, but it drives you to Christ. This is how he put it in Romans chapter 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Or in other words, the law was given to increase your awareness of how wretched and wicked and sinful you are. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the more that you see the law and the more that you become aware of your sin, you need not be overwhelmed by that because God has supplied in his grace a savior. And the consequences of your law breaking, which is death, Jesus has satisfied in himself, taking upon himself the curse of law breaking, which is death. And, and he's taken that upon himself to set you free. So now run to Christ. Because if you run to Christ, you can have your sin forgiven. And more than that, you can be free from all of the damning consequences that come from disobedience. So it shows you your sin and it drives you to Christ to be Savior. And there's a second good use of the law, which is to restrain evil. And we see this in societies all over the world. The Ten Commandments is often used as kind of the, a platform by which uh, nations will use um, that to kind of enact laws, moral laws. So, for instance, don't murder each other. Many countries have that as a law. Where do you think they get that? <laughs> I have it every once in a while. I talk with some folks and they'll say, the Bible is dumb and it's outdated and it's super old and there's nothing helpful in it. <sighs> it's like, so you mean not murdering people is not helpful? Oh, no, 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 that's good, but dude, come on. But you can see the good use of the law in that way. It helps to restrain evil. Don't lie to each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't be sleeping with your neighbor's wife. You see how that works. Um, that will restrain evil. And then the third use is this. It helps us as Christians to love God and to love our neighbors well. This is the point that is going to be a paradigm shift for many of you. And I get that. I've already talked to so many people after each service where they're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I may need to listen to that sermon again. That's okay. But we do need to recognize that the Ten Commandments are given not only to make us aware of our sin, not only to drive us to Christ, and not only to help us live in a moral society, but the third reason is it helps us to understand how we can love God and love our neighbors well. And here's how I'm going to connect all this stuff. We go to Jesus. Jesus is asked by a religious leader, a lawyer, who's an expert in the writings of the Old Testament, He's asked this question, teacher, Matthew 22, verse 36, which is the great commandment of the law? In other words, what's the most important thing about the Ten Commandments? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And look at this. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus, what happens is Jesus is asked, okay, of the Ten Commandments, what's the most important? And his answer is, well, if you take the ten, what you can do is actually kind of distill them into really just two, which is love God and love your neighbor. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, you understand that, okay, there's Ten Commandments. And the first four are really about our relationship with God. How do we love God? First four commandments. But then the next six commandments are all about your relationship with other people. And so if you ask the question, how do I love my neighbor? 
last six commandments. And so the Ten Commandments in Jesus' mind is divided into two uh, portions, which is love God and love your neighbor. You remember when Moses went up the mountain of Sinai and he came down with the Ten Commandments and had two t- tables, tablets, and written on, on the tablets by the finger of God were the Ten Commandments? We always think it's five and five on each. But I think a better way to, to think about it, and this is what Christians have taught for thousands of years, is think of the first four on one table and the last six on the other table. This is how you love God. This is how you love your neighbor. First four commandments, last six commandments. And if you do those things well, you will bring glory to God and you will find your greatest joy. You will. Now, I like what Paul does in Galatians chapter 5. This is a book all about the law. He says that we are free from the law in the sense that we no longer have the consequences for sin under the law because Jesus has become our curse bearer for us. He has paid the penalty on the cross. He has risen from the dead for our justification. Sin is now forgiven. We are now free. And then what Paul says is, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Jesus did that for you, to be free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, selfishness. But through love, serve one another. Now look at what he does in verse 14. For or because the whole law of the Ten Commandments is fulfilled in one word or one idea. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Christian teaching. Christian teaching is Jesus has come to set you free so that you can lovingly serve your neighbors. Go and do likewise, he said. But yet Paul says, but you need to remember that as you go and lovingly serve your neighbors, you're bringing ultimate glory of God and you are in in effect fulfilling the Ten Commandments. Do you see that? Now, I think this is significant because we talked about, uh, I think this is significant because we talked a lot about behaviors. And, and what Paul does is, is he, he's reminding people, look, the law is laid down for people who are totally ungodly. They're, they're totally wicked. And you need to know that. And then what I want to do is, is go back to verses 9 and 10 and kind of show you how Paul lays out the Ten Commandments for us. You can't see it yet. But he says that the law is laid down for those who are lawless. And then he uses this phrase for the unholy and profane. Do you remember what the fourth commandment is? Honor the Sabbath. Treat the day as holy. If you break the Sabbath, you are unholy. And he uses the word that the law is for the unholy. And then the next word he uses is profane. You guys remember what the third commandment is? Don't use the Lord's name in vain, for that is profanity. So right there in that little statement, it's it's saying, look, these wicked people are those who break the third and fourth commandment. They're unholy and profane. And then he goes on and he says, the law is laid down for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Do you remember what the fifth commandment is? Honor your father and mother. Don't be beating your parents. Honor them. And then he goes on to the next one. For murderers. Do we know what the sixth commandment is? Do not murder. Ah. You know what the seventh commandment is? Do not commit adultery. What do, look, at, look at what we have here. The sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Those break the ten commandments. 
What is the eighth commandment? Do not steal. And what do we have here? People who are enslavers. You know the worst kind of form of, of theft there is? Slavery. Ninth commandment. Do not lie or give false witness to your neighbor. What do we have here? The law is for those who are liars and perjurers. Tenth commandment. Do not covet. And Paul doesn't say anything about covet because he knows that to covet has a, just so many expressions. To covet means I want something that's not mine. Jealousy, envy, strife, murder. Why do you do those things? Because you want stuff that ain't yours. And you know what Paul does right here? He says, and the list could go on and on, but he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound, or the word in Greek is healthy, and whatever else, whatever action is contrary to healthy, and we would expect at this point healthy living, healthy morality, healthy obedience. That's what we would expect. Because he just listed all kinds of actions. But you see what Paul does here. These kinds of actions are contrary to healthy what? Doctrine. Theology. And that's why I said right thinking will lead to right living. Because Paul says the evidence that your theology is wrong is because your life is wrong. You're living in disobedience, which is evidence that you don't know what you're talking about. You see, legalists, they're all about, hey, the law, you need to obey it in order to receive God's love. And we tend to think that legalists are all law people. There's law, 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 law. The reality is, the re what's wrong with legalists is that they don't know the law. <laughs> Not that they overemphasize it, they just don't understand it. And people are antinomian who focus on grace, 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 grace. The reality is, it's not that they overdo grace, it's that they don't really understand grace. How do I know that's true? Well, here's how. If we go to Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to give you a quick preview of, of how the Bible kind of sets in trajectory how we should understand the law and understand grace. You remember this in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, right from the beginning, male, female. God created human beings, gave them his image. And do you remember what he does next in verse 28? Before they're able to speak, act, or do anything, what, what does God do to them? Blesses them. You know the definition of grace? Unmerited favor. Before you were able to do anything, I'm blessing you. That, brothers and sisters, is the definition of grace. So Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and God blesses them, not because they did anything to deserve it, but he simply graces them with blessing. Here's blessing for you. And then the very next thing that comes from the lips of God is this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what is that? Command. Do you see that? God creates Adam and Eve, breathes life into them before they're able to do anything, graces them with blessing, and then speaks to them command. 
In other words, God is saying, look, I've created you to image me. And so I'm blessing you. And as a product of the grace of this blessing, I want you to behave this way. Because when you behave this way, you're doing the very thing I created you to do. Namely, to worship me by obeying me. Now, this is important because in our culture today, everyone is doing what Satan did, which is the serpent comes up to Eve and says, yeah, did God really say do you know that God actually is keeping you from enjoying the fullness of the garden because he knows that if you eat of the tree that you shouldn't eat, you'll actually become like God. Don't you want to be like God, knowing good and evil? The only way to, do, to be more like God is to disobey him. That is exactly what's happening in our culture today. The only way for you to truly experience the love of God, antinomians would say, is to disobey him. God didn't make human beings male and female. He made them male, female, and anything else you can invent. God did not say that you needed to be in a covenant of marriage and sexually express that love male and female. You could do anything you want. And in fact, many people will say, we know that since God is loving and the most loving person on earth, he would never restrict me in any way. So if you truly want to be like God, Satan says, disobey God. Sound familiar? Instead, what we see is God created human beings in the image of God, blesses them with his grace before they did anything and says, now I command you be obedient to me because in your obedience, you're going to be living out exactly how I made you and you're going to experience the joy of obedience. Not only that, but do you remember when God brought... Israel out of Egypt, and he gave them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Here's the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what Exodus 19 is, the one chapter previous? It's where God says, I have done this. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I have brought you out of slavery. I have done this according to my grace and my love for you. That came first. Then Exodus chapter 20 came, which is now live this way. Do you see what happens? I created you, Adam and Eve. I blessed you. Now live like this. I created you a nation called Israel. I'm blessing you. Now live this way. And we get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Have you memorized that before? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are created in Christ Jesus as new creations. We are blessed with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now we are sent out to do good works. Do you see the pattern? It's incredibly important that we understand this. You see, there's a pattern throughout Scripture. It's crucifixion, resurrection. It's death, life. And what we see is this. When it comes to the law, we all have failed. We all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, treasuring God in the law. And we all deserve punishment. But Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus Christ bore the curse for us. And if we believe in him, we are united with him and we are forgiven because we are in him. And it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. You see, I've been crucified to the world, but now I live in new, new, newness of life. I was crucified in my sin, but now I'm resurrected to new life. 
I'm going to tie it all together, Romans 8. I know we're getting long. Romans 8, this will all come together, and I hope that you will see the beauty of this. Romans chapter 8, my favorite chapters. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus lived the perfect obedient life and fulfilled the law for us. And not only that, but he bore the consequences of sin for transgressing the law for us. So that we no longer get the punishment, but we get his righteousness. It's called the great exchange. And he says, for the law of the spirit of life, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. You no longer have to fear condemnation because Jesus has bore the entire curse and penalty for sin for you. And you are free from the law of sin and death because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what could the law not do? Well, God did what the law couldn't do. So the answer is, well, whatever the law can't do is evidenced by whatever God did. And what we come to see is that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God became flesh and dwelt among us and he condemned sin in the flesh. And look at this in verse 4. In order that, and here's what God did that the law could not do. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The spirit is given to us, not just so we can experience all kinds of exciting things, but the spirit is given to us so that we may fulfill the law. And the law's fulfillment is in loving God and loving our neighbor. And apart from the spirit, it says this in in verse 8, those who are in the flesh, those who do not have the Holy Spirit, those who are not in Christ, they cannot please God. In other words, the gospel is not just Jesus has died to forgive you of sins, but Jesus is resurrected and Jesus has sent the spirit to you. And the spirit comes to adopt you into the membership of God's family. And in the family of God, there's a way that we ought to behave. But you don't need to fear about trying to do that in your own power. You've been given the Holy Spirit to empower you to love God supremely, love your neighbor sacrificially, and in so doing you fulfill all the law of God. The righteous requirements is being satisfied in you, not because of you, but because of the spirit dwelling in you. There is, as far as I know, there's no person that wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves, how can I be the most evil person possible? But I do know many, 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 many people evidenced by the fact that we buy self-help books by the millions who wake up in the morning saying, I really want to be a good person today. I have good news and bad news. We'll start with the bad news. You do not possess the power, the energy, the resources, the imagination or the willpower to ever please God and be a good person. But I have good news for you. Knowing that God sent his son to die for the consequences for your misbehavior. And to rise from the dead for your justification. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to you to do the very thing that your heart wants to do. Namely to please God and to love your neighbor. And apart from getting the Holy Spirit, you cannot do that. So when it comes to the legalists, they say, no, 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 God only loves me if I obey. The reality is you can't obey. And in fact, what the Bible teaches us is that first God loves you and graces you, blesses you. And then he tells you obey. Obeying is the consequence of his love, not the means to get it. 
antinomians would say, oh, it's all about grace. I don't need to worry about the law. No, 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 no. If you truly had God's grace, then that means that you're filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit's purpose is to come empower you to obey. God's grace is not the absence of the law. God's grace is granted to you so that you can fulfill the law. So we can love God supremely and love our neighbor sacrificially. I love this church emblazoned on the back. Our purpose is to glorify God by making disciples who will impact every area of the world for Christ. The only way we're going to truly glorify God is to love him supremely. The only way we're truly going to make disciples is if we love people sacrificially. And we we need to do so amongst all the nations. Which means we need the Holy Spirit. To that end, let's pray. Father, we need you. I can't think of a more desperate verse that reveals to us how much we need you. We need your spirit to overwhelm us and to consume us. Not for selfish ambition and not for selfish fulfillment, but in order that we may become selfless. So God, grant us the power in such abundance, overflowingly so, that we would love you supremely and love our neighbor sacrificially. And in so doing, we exercise our freedom to obey the Ten Commandments. God, would you do that for us? We want to be a church that brings you ultimate glory. And we know just in the case of Adam and Eve, in the case of the nation of Israel, in the case of all who have been redeemed, our greatest joy will be in bringing you greatest glory. And that is when we obey you. So teach us these things, we pray. We need you. In Jesus' name.